0: Under the radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered.
1: It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void
2: in the traditional media covering these new faces of Boston.
0: You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve.
2: It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community
3: or a neighborhood. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, two first-time candidates for Boston's District 9 are heading into the final election on November 5th. Craig Cashman and Liz Braden beat out seven other candidates for the chance to represent Austin Brighton residents on the Boston City Council. Both are here to talk about the big and small issues facing the district. Later in the show, STEM, science, tech, engineering and math is more and more integral to our professional and everyday lives. That's why for the second year in a row, Massachusetts is sponsoring Mass STEM Week, a statewide initiative to get kids excited about the fields of STEM. But for First, joining me in the studio are District 9 City Council finalists, Liz Braden, originally from Northern Ireland. Liz is a longtime Oak Square resident. She is a physical therapist and community activist.
2: Hello, Liz. Hi. <laughs>
3: Also with me, Craig Cashman, born and raised in Brighton. Craig Cashman spent 12 years as the district director for Austin Brighton State Representative Michael Moran. Welcome, Craig.
0: Hi, Cal. How are you?
3: Fine. Um, I got to start this way. Uh, two things that need to be said. Um, the former Boston City Councilor who served in this district for 11 years it's Mark Chiomo, uh, stepped down, which is why this seat is open. And, you know, lots of folks like yourself uh, attempted to uh, represent the district. So it's why open when somebody steps down who's been in that position for, I would say, 11 years. The other thing I want to say is the two of you are really highly regarded by many, many people, uh, not the least of which the Boston Globe. This is what the Boston Globe said before the preliminary election. The Boston Globe endorses Craig Cashman, a former Beacon Hill aide well-versed in local politics, but with a nod to physical therapist Liz Braden, who is also a strong candidate. If those two end up in the November final election, voters can be assured of a lively campaign and a promising new city councilor. So congratulations to the two of you for being folks that the Globe and others have recognized as uh, good potential leaders for this district. So let's talk about, I like to start with the, the two or three pressing issues of the district, and uh, not surprisingly, housing <laughs> and transportation. So let's talk housing. Liz, you've uh, come out and said thousands of units of, are being built, but nothing affordable.
2: That's correct. Sadly, we're seeing thousands of new units of housing being constructed in in Alston Brighton. And uh, most of it
3: is totally unaffordable for the people who actually live here. And And what do you mean by affordable? Let us know who's in the district that you're concerned about, who can't afford it. Mm.
2: Well, we have large numbers of young uh, professionals who live in the district, and many of them want to stay in the district, but so many of them are actually still living as roommates with uh, friends in their late twenties and thirties. When uh, under normal circumstances, they'd be maybe living on their own. The other issue is that we're with all the housing that's been built, we're not actually increasing the housing supply for families mm. or people who want to live in in groups. You know, the, families is a an elastic term groups of young people that want to put down roots and stay in the neighborhood uh, over the long term. But the, the, really the most critical issue is the actual level of affordability. every, every project has a the big projects over over uh, 10 units ha- are designated to have 13% of affordable units built in. and of those affordable units are uh, in this neighborhood, are pegged at 70% of the area median income which 70% 70% that that should be underscored uh, absolutely mm-hmm. and when when you comp- when you look at that in comparison to what the actual earning capacity the uh, of the folks who live here it's it's out of balance okay we're so- not we're building a lot of more luxury housing and we're not building housing for more middle-income people in the neighborhood. So that's Liz Braden. Craig Cashman,
3: weigh in.
0: Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, for me, as somebody who did grow up here, um, you know, the re- the reality is, is that um, I think affordability is an issue across um, almost every group of people that live in this community. Um, you know, I know my wife and I, uh, before, right before we got married, we were renting in this community and, you know, we're looking... Uh, at communities, you know, in the Metro West or beyond uh, before we were uh, afforded the opportunity to buy her grandmother's home, um, which, you know, even then we're having to work a couple different jobs uh, to make that work because we wanted to stay in our community. That shouldn't be what it takes to to live um, in Austin, Brighton. And I think when you look at um, what's going on, certainly the IDP uh, with all the development that's happening, um, you know, IDP, IDP, the inclusionary development program, yes, okay. which is the, the, mm. the, um, the affordability component to all, all the, the bigger uh, projects, you know, we do need to expand that across all different income levels. But I also think, you know, uh, we have to hold the development community accountable uh, and, and ask them to Number one, create more affordability in their own um, developments, but also to start paying into what I'd like to propose—a community trust fund, uh, housing fund that would we could now capture as a community. Work with nonprofit housing. groups and build, as a city, um, build some affordable housing. I think it's been a long time. So what does time. that
3: look like? Let me just interrupt you and say, so when you say ask more for the developers, how much more and what does the well, what does this fund look like? I mean, I think
0: every <laughs> different project is, <laughs> uh, is you know, it, you can kind of capture more from the larger ones. I mean, there's one right down the street from where we're sitting right now. Um, Austin yards, which is if as proposed right now, and we haven't seen a new version of it yet. But you know, it's a, it's close to a billion dollar project. Um, and right now, they I think they're proposing four million dollars in a community fund. Um, that's unacceptable, if you ask me. Um, but we can capture more money out of that, and then as a as a city, um, we can work with some of the properties that we have that maybe you know need a little more life and re, and you know to to build housing. It's I think it's been a long time. Um, Since the city itself has built affordable housing, I think we can, you know, go down that path as well.
3: Um, Did you want to offer a solution, Liz? Because uh, Craig offered both the problem and the solution. I want to give you a chance for the solution.
2: Um, I think the bottom line is we actually need to build more affordable housing and to have it uh, priced at a, at, a, at, a, at a an affordable level
3: how do you get developers who to well, buy into uh, that? The,
2: the case in point the, the case that um, Craig mentioned is the stop and shop uh, Alston Yards project mm-hmm. it is the poster child for an opportunity to build more 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 affordable housing a uh, stop and shop, don't have any acquisition costs, they actually own that site. They're proposing to build almost a 1,000 units of housing on it. And they've, uh, they're also proposing to build like 12.9% of it is going to be affordable. And the affordable units are all going to be studios. Mm-hmm. So in that case, with so much density, we would argue that that developer should be developing much more affordable housing on that site. Like A, a minimum of 20%, 25%
3: seems pretty reasonable in that case. Um, I should say the wGbh sits right in your district <laughs> so so you, you know you'll be the uh the counselor representing the institution anyway um in that way uh, we put online uh asked uh people in your district to come to us with questions they may want to ask you so so we're in the discussion about housing I just want to uh, raise up one uh our community has this 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 uh, person who wrote in said has created uh with the bpda that's the big um, housing Authority, master plans for development, green space, walking, biking, transit, etc. But the plans are ignored by the same agency and large developments are approved as standalone projects. Will you advocate for adherence to a master plan?
0: You know, one of the things I talked about from the very beginning of uh, this campaign. And I and I commend um, Michelle Wu's efforts uh, on the uh, abolish the BBDA. I think that that's a conversation, whether we actually abolish it or we just make corrections. Um, but I've talked about standalone planning. One of the things that frustrates me about development in this community is, you know, we're going, th- there's a scourge of it right now. We're going through it. And we have developers who could be on diagonal corners of one another uh, and they're not working together uh the city should be facilitating that they have traffic engineers they're doing traffic studies shadow studies uh, i mean environmental studies and you would think it would make sense because they're in the same neighborhood they're in or on top of each other that they could work together um when it talks to creating better infrastructure you know better, uh, you know, making sure that we're, we're, you know, bringing these buildings up to, you know, environmental standards. We should all be working together uh, to do that as a community. And I think right now that's what's lacking. Certainly we have one-offs, you know, uh, Austin Landing, which is down where, you know, the Mass Pike is going to move, will most likely go through a planned development area. So that's going to go under its own plan. But I do think we need a community-wide plan um, to tackle uh, some of these issues so that everything's working together because that's not happening right now.
3: Uh, that's uh, candidate Craig Cashman. He's running for District 9 Boston City Councilor. Uh, Liz Braden. I, I support Michelle Wu's pro- uh, proposal to.
2: Um, and by the way, that's City Councilor Ruth. Michelle
3: Wu, in case Michelle. People don't know. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. City
2: Councilor Michelle Wu's mm-hmm. plan to mm-hmm. uh, abolish the uh, BPDA as it stands. Uh, we really need a comprehensive planning approach, and the BPDA does not. Do planning. Mm -hmm. Uh, We need an integrated plan for the whole city and then down to the neighbourhood level that incorporates uh, really uh, our issues around transportation, especially. Uh, So much of what we see built in our neighbourhood is being presented to the community as transit-oriented development, which means that they put in very little parking and they say we don't need cars because you're going to be beside the T, but yet our T is crumbling under the stress and is, needs so much investment that uh, it, it's, it's not working for people. We're increasing our population, but we're not keeping up with our infrastructure. So the planning piece of it is really critical. Like right here down on Guest Street, where we're located right now, they had a Guest Street urban plan, but the BPDA did not hold the developers to the plan. They they, they had a long community process in that, in that planning process. So it
3: was almost like the community didn't speak. So they say yeah. we, we
2: did a, an urban planning process and then the developers come along and set the agenda and say mm. this is what we want to do. Mm. So the community sort of then always having to push back and say hang on a minute what about the green space that you promised in this? You say that you were going to limit the height to 15 stories. Why, why is the next pr- project that comes mm. along the stop and shop project suggesting 22 stories? Mm. So we really had to push the the stop and shop, uh, the Austin Yards, down stop and shop project to increase the green space because they had like one percent of the project was going to be green space for a, for a project that was going to ha- have a thousand units of housing okay. so it's always that the, the community this is where I where I got involved active in the community was really always having a push back against these unrealistic and insensitive projects that are being presented and and that the community voice is not being heard. And then the other issue was with another project was the St. Gabriel's project up on Washington Street. We had a very uh, prolonged community process where we raised many, many concerns. Our elected representatives raised their concerns. Our city councillor opposed it. The people on the, the advisory group from the community had concerns about it. And at the end of the day, the developer got to do it, what they wanted to
3: do and or, and the community concerns were were pushed aside. Um, I should note that you have elected not to take donations from any developers because you wanted to say some things that you didn't think you could if you accepted donations. Um, uh, Craig Cashman, if you want to respond to that, you can, but um, that's an interesting point because development is a big issue in your in your district yeah
0: yeah I mean I didn't feel the need to to say to to take a pledge um you know I haven't taken any money from any large for-profit developers um you know certainly I think Liz and I both have you know networks in this community where people may work in development or real estate but you know I have showed no interest in I certainly I know these developers you know I've been fortunate enough to you know work with them and and, and you know them you meet them at meetings and you maybe you go you know socialize with them afterwards. Um, You know, some of them I know who I've become friendly with because they have kids the same age as Mm -hmm. uh, myself. So I think that's the social capital that you need um, as a city councilor. I have a friend who's done some small projects. One of them I think is beautiful. The other one I I didn't agree with. And it's in our neighborhood. And it's I think, you know, we need to continue the uh, dialogue and, and being ha- having that social capital is so important. So. Okay. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm
3: Callie Crossley, and here with me are Boston City Council District 9 candidates, Craig Cashman and Liz Braden. We're discussing the biggest issues facing the Alston-Brighton neighborhoods and the final weeks of their campaigns. So, uh, traffic. Liz Braden, you've gone so far as to say congestion pricing just needs to happen. In addition to other things, why we have a serious problem with traffic congestion? Uh, we are we're supposed to be the worst
2: uh, traffic in the country at this point in time. So I, I think we we have to take many different approaches to this. Uh, congestion pricing for has its pros and cons. To try and have the people using the roads at certain at rush hour, the people who actually have to get to work um, and to discourage people who don't need to use the roads at that time to, so get, off. The, to get off the yeah. road and leave it, leave it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they use congestion pricing in other cities like in London and that. They have, they have uh, congestion pricing as a way to manage their traffic congestion. Um, the, the, the bottom line is we really need to invest in our public transit uh, we need a mass transit system that can uh, allow our commuters to come in from from the suburbs easily okay. to get to their work in the city without having to use a car and that is the bottom line we have we have deferred maintenance on our mass transit system for many many years. we have uh, we have not invested in improving our mass transit system and our commuter rail system, and it really is uh, an economic drag. it will be economically mm-hmm. detrimental to our community and to the city over time if we don't do some serious
3: investment in our public transit system. Craig, would you agree with congestion pricing or do you have another solution for the traffic situation in Austin Brighton?
0: I think congestion pricing is definitely on the table. Um, I agree with investment in the MBTA, but I think it's sort of, you know, just to sort of bring it back to the housing part of it, you know, we have a couple bills right now uh, in the State House where if signed by the governor, would allow municipalities outside of Boston to lift zoning and and build more housing, more affordable housing. Uh, and I think when you start talking about um, what you know building around our our commuter rail, Um, that is going to certainly help. It's not going to solve the entire problem with with traffic on the Mass Pike or the Southeast Expressway or our our neighborhood streets. But building more in some of these communities that, you know, are very NIMBY, they don't want to build, or or if they do build, they only want to build single-family homes. Um, Building in those communities along those um, transit lines, you know, when all of a sudden now you can get from, you know, um, Dedham or Needham or wherever, uh, to Boston in 20 to 25 minutes on the commuter rail, you know, that becomes more attractive to people. And again, it has to be affordable because um, we can't do it on our own. And I, and I think that that's, again, one, uh, not a quick fix, but it certainly will help get people out of their cars and onto the trains. And certainly, you know, when I was working with the representative, we, we created a working group, um, a, a caucus of all the legislators along the framingham Worcester line after Boston Landing opened and we had the proposed West Station that uh, the administration has dragged their feet on, unfortunately. Um, you know, we, we had a conversation with every legislator from South Station to Worcester about what their needs were along that line. And in some places it was parking. You know, um, I think it was the representative uh, from Grafton who said the parking lot's filled up at 630 in the morning. Um, so people get on the Mass Pike, you know, and and drive in and are looking for parking. So if it's a parking garage that they need in Grafton, uh, if it's new signaling, if it's more frequency, you know, I think those are the approaches that we need to take. A, a comprehensive you know, uh, collaborative approach to, to solve these problems.
3: Um, yes, go ahead, Liz. Um,
2: I'd just also like to comment. Mm-hmm. There was a study recently with regard to the cost of using the commuter rail for folks who have been displaced from our city because mm-hmm. of the cost of housing. So more and more low-income people are being forced to move out of the city. And the cost of the commuter rail is so so high it's that they can't, they can't yeah. afford to yeah. use it. Mm-hmm. So the other day I was down at the picket line at the uh, at the strike down at uh, Battery Wharf and I spoke to some of the, the strikers down there. And I spoke to one... Young man and he, he lives in Brockton. And I says, well, how do you get to work? And he says he brings his car into town. And he said he pays $28 a day to park his car. And he's, he's a low-income worker and his, he's not able, because of his hours and the shifts that he works, he's not able to rely on our public transit system or any of our transit systems to get, he, he relies on his car to bring him into work. So and that's adding
3: we, to the congestion. It's adding, yes, yes. yes. So
2: my bottom line with regard to housing in the city, it's really important that we develop housing for all income brackets in the neighborhood. We need an economically diverse community. We need an, an, an economically diverse city. And we can't continue to displace low income workers out to the suburbs if we're not going to provide affordable transit for them to get back into into work in the city. Mm.
3: Um, one of the other ways uh, to raise revenues for your district, uh, Liz Braden, you've suggested, is to increase the pilot payments from colleges. In Austin. Brighton there's a lot of colleges and universities, each of them are to make a non-profit payment. I mean, they are nonprofits, so they make a payment into the community, and you're saying, let's raise that. I'm not actually <laughs> proposing that we raise it. Mm-hmm. I'm actually proposing that they pay the assessed uh,
2: pilot payment <laughs> that they are, have been asked to pay. Yeah. Uh, the pilot is payment in lieu of taxes, so these non-profit institutions do not pay real estate taxes as the rest of us do. And we're asking the, the pilot payment in lieu is a voluntary payment uh, plan where they would pay twenty five percent of the of their what their assessed value of their real estate. And is. So your point is they haven't been paying them. Yeah. So <laughs> the twenty five percent, then they don't pay all of that in cash. Twelve and a half percent of it is in cash, and the institutions in this neighborhood, like BC, Boston College, and Boston University, uh, and and others, they do not pay their mm-hmm. full freight on pilot. Got so. It. The knock on effect of that is you and I, as the citizens of the city, have to pick up the tab to compensate for the money that they don't pay.
3: And um, following up on that, uh, Craig, a where do you uh, where do you sit on increasing uh, or getting them to pay? And also, Harvard has planned expansion into Austin. So we're talking about a rather large university uh, somewhat one would say financially stable. Uh, you would want, <laughs> I would no, say that. <laughs> yeah. Would want to be getting that payment as well.
0: Yeah. I don't think you'll <laughs> find anybody in our community who, mm-hmm. who doesn't think uh, these colleges should be paying what they're asked to pay. And, you know, they like to use the community benefits um, that they do give to our community as a way to to say, well, look what we did. So this is okay. And just not even want to talk about, you know, I think it was Boston College, I think paid uh, almost next to nothing as to what they were asked last time around. And I do actually, I disagree with Liz on one thing. I actually, I think we should get them to pay it, but I also think we should reassess it. Um, You know, they, they continue to buy more property. And when you talk about Harvard, I mean, we're talking about close to 100 acres of developable land. You know, and I don't, uh, uh, mitigation uh, is not a community benefit. Mm-hmm. And we need to get away from that dialogue. Uh, they're going to build sidewalks and roads and and they're going to do everything uh, to their standard because of who they are. Um, community benefit needs to be On that 100 acres, affordable housing. It needs to be investing back into the community. Um, We talk about the Jackson Mann School closing. One of the things, you know, I've, Mm -hmm. when it comes to pilot, I mean, we're not capturing that money. But above and beyond that, I mean, we live in a city with these excellent uh, institutions of higher education. and, And they're the ones who should be helping to make sure that all the kids in our neighborhood are, are getting the education. I mean, Harvard is the ed portal, which is a great it's a it's a great service to families and kids can go get tutoring. They have adult education courses. So I, creating that accountability, um, capturing that funding. I mean, that's going to make our community better.
3: Um, so you brought up Jackson Mann, um, the closure of it. One of the questioners asked uh, to us, what, what will you do with the students displaced by Jackson Mann?
2: Uh, well, Jackson Man is a complex. Uh, we have the Jackson School, we have the Horace Mann School for the Blind, and we also house a community centre there. So it's a, it's a it's a it's a very um, very well positioned community asset, and we do not wish to see the uh, student body from the Jackson displaced because seventy sixty percent of the children who st- who go to school at the Jackson elementary school at, on that site are actually from this neighbourhood. So we want to, and, and it's very uh, in close proximity, they have the community centre that provides after-school So pro- what will you do? The, what, so I really feel that we need to ensure that, that the Jackson School is not uh, relocated out of the district, mm-hmm. because we have a large body of students who actually live in the district and they should be able to attend that school. And there's another 40% of students who come in from out of, dist- out, of, out, of the, out of Alston Bright. The other issue with regard to the Jackson Man is it's in very close proximity to the West End House, Mm. which provides sort of the most amazing after-school programs uh, that I've ever come across. So there's a there's a a very sort of uh, complementary relationship between the Jackson Man complex and the students Mm. who attend, and more and all the benefits, more to
3: lose if and more to lose. It's not
2: just Mm. the school. Uh, The students, if they were displaced out to other parts of the city, they would lose their. Immediate access for after-school programs that they can really benefit from.
0: Yeah, uh, at the at the West End House. What do you think, Craig Cashman? You know, I from the I I don't understand um, how in our city that we can just go in one day and and decide that a building's falling down. So I mean, that's the core issue here. Um, this should have been addressed a long time ago. It has to start with a transparent process for all every parent, every family, and every kid to make sure that. The kids who live in this community do have a place to have a seat um, in a school in this community. Uh, and then when it comes to building it, I think it comes back to my my pri- my, my previous uh, answer with, with the pile payment. Hmm. Um, you know, certainly the city of Boston should be building new schools in the city. Um, we haven't built a lot of new municipal buildings. Uh, with all the building that's going on, that's something that, you know, uh, we should really start to think about um, when it comes to is, down in that area of Harvard, um, Austin Landing, you know, I think we're building our first firehouse for the first time in 40 years um, now. So when you start talking about building new schools, building new municipal buildings, senior centers, this is something that needs to happen. And it needs to happen in every community, including ours. Uh, and we have the room to do it. Um, and again, I think it's just accountability, making sure uh, that that we're planning for the future because we're growing. Um And I think kids come with that growth. Uh, Students come with that growth. So making sure that we have seats for them, making sure that we have, as Liz said, there's a community center in that building. If that one, that community is knocked down, we no longer have uh, a BCYF um, Youth and Families Community Center. In our neighborhood, um, there are others that have two or three, and we deserve better than that. And pilot money is part of that. And um, again, it's just, it's all a transparent process and making sure that we're doing right by our neighborhood and our families and kids.
2: I think it, the, the other issue with regard to Jackson Man is that we, we actually do not have an open and and transparent process. Like uh, they said they were going to close it in two years. We're now down to 18 months and we still don't have a plan. And so the parents and the teachers and the community at large who use that facility need to know what's going on and have a really strong community process so that we can make the best
3: possible decision about the future of that complex for the neighbourhood and for the students that, that go there. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm here with Boston City Council District 9 candidates Liz Braden and Craig Cashman. We're talking about the final weeks of their campaigns ahead of the November 5th elections and the issues for the Austin-Brighton neighborhood. Now, here's a question that came in um Totally different from all the other things we've been talking about. And the questioner says the Boston Police Department does not have a non-discrimination policy for transgendered people. By the way, this questioner says ne- neither one of you have mentioned transgender people and they're just raising that um, regarding the use of pronouns for those who identify as non-binary. And there are no policies in place regarding lockup placement since Alston has a sizable trans community, something I did not know. Uh, Questioner wants to know, what will you do not only when it comes to police accountability, but housing discrimination as well?
0: Obviously, we have to hold our our police accountable. Um, And it comes with working with the commissioner and working with our police force to understand the needs of the entire community. I absolutely uh, support making sure that we are, are, are doing everything we can to make sure that we are not discriminating against uh, marginalized communities. And as far as uh, what was the second part of the question?
3: Um, housing. Dis- how, how, how are we yeah. going to do about police accountability and housing discrimination? Yeah,
0: sure. You know, we have fair housing laws and we need to continue to enforce them. Um, you know, it goes back to building housing and um building public housing again in this community is, is making it more inclusive is something that, you know, we, when you have the, that type of, um, uh, uh a new sort of set of, uh, h- housing available, you can really work to, you know, push the buttons to make sure that it is all inclusive. Um, you know, I've seen it working on the state side in processes where you can really do things down to the, you know, down to the, the, you know, dot the I and cross the T's to make sure everyone is covered. Um, and that's certainly something I'd be an advocate for.
3: Okay. Liz? The
2: bottom line is that we shouldn't uh, discriminate against uh, LGBT uh, community. And I think we need to do a lot more uh, training and awareness training for our for our public service, like our police department, to understand mm-hmm. that you, do, you don't discriminate against uh, individuals from that community. And... Uh, We need to strengthen our housing protections to bring that, to make it very explicitly clear that uh, discriminating against transgender people is not not allowed mm-hmm. and, and strengthen the laws and the enforcement to make sure that that doesn't happen unfortunately at the national level there's a big pushback to um, to take away rights and, and protections for uh, the LGBT community so I think this is this is Boston this is Massachusetts we were the first to um, legalize same-sex marriage. I really think that we can. We should. We should be the leaders on this issue.
3: Okay, let me um, close this way, if I can, by asking you. Uh two questions um, that are specific to you or a question specific to you in this way. We started by saying, you know, both of you are highly regarded candidates, but I think um, you're regarded coming from different places. Liz, people think of you as the grassroots activist coming from the outside in. Craig, for better or worse, you worked 12 years with uh, Mike Moran, so it feels a little bit like you're inside, even though you're first-time candidate as well. So from your different positions and perspectives what do you think you bring or can bring uh, to this district um, in a way that it hasn't been served uh, thus far well I think
0: you know certainly yeah you know I think the experience I got working in the state house the relationships I have are important and then you know working in government um, is is one thing but I also think that uh, you know I'm 36 years old I'm a millennial mm-hmm. uh, you know I, I found that out during this campaign I made the cutoff. <laughs> Um, But, you know, my generation, I was talking about this last night with with a voter and it it was, you know, um, the discouraging uh, aspect of going to, you know, uh, a park or a playground and talking to young families and them saying that, you know, uh, I can't stay here. I'm going to move or going out and, and talking to voters who, you know, are a little bit younger than me, who are, you know, scraping by to stay here you know i have that perspective and and you know i've i've had the bartend You know, to, you know, as well as work in government to to make ends meet. I've had to, you know, I spent a lot of time officiating hockey games, you know, high school and and, uh, other level hockey games to make ends meet. So some generational Uh, um, insight. Yeah. And then, Mm -hmm. but but so so to come back full circle, Mm -hmm. you know, having seniors uh, who live in this community, you know, who are family members, you know, it gives me that perspective too, because, you know, I grew up with my grandparents in this community. um, And now I have, you know, a two and a one year old at home. So, I think just the generational approach to, you know, what this neighborhood is, was, certainly was, and what it's becoming um, is something that I can come with full perspective from top to bottom to say that, you know, I want this to be a neighborhood for my kids. You know, I don't want them to get priced out. And I don't want the people that I've met and my wife have met, you know, whether it be working in government, she's an educator in the community, you know, the young people that we meet go into meetings. I want them to be able to stay here, too. And the reality is, is that's not the case anymore. It's getting tougher and tougher. And, and everybody is in the middle, whether it's fa- generational families, renters, our immigrant community, the, the working class is getting squeezed in this community. And we're becoming, a, a, unfortunately, a community of, um, you know, well, well um, empty luxury apartments and millionaires. And that's that's something that I'm going to work to to fight against every day.
3: OK, Les Braden from your grassroots activist perspective what do you think you bring to-
2: well mm. you know as soon as I open my mouth that I'm not from I'm not from here I'm an immigrant um, I, I came to Boston uh, and it was professionally and uh, personally a really really uh, incredible experience and it offered me opportunities that I wouldn't have had at home the the experience of getting involved in the neighborhood at the at the grassroots level is you're really here every day and I've been doing this for 15 years every day you hear about the challenges that people are facing and the decisions that are made at top down decisions that are made from uh, at the state house or even at city hall that impact people's lives every day but the people on the grassroots level just don't feel that their voices are being heard. Uh, Whether they're a young family who are seeking uh, a good school uh, for their child, uh, there's someone seeking to find a stable home that they can stay in one place for a few years. Uh, Folks who are struggling with uh, accessibility at our crosswalks because in the wintertime they're they're, uh, inaccessible because there are piles of snow on them. Just the very basic level, uh, so I bring a life of uh, experience as a physical therapist, as a community activist, as an immigrant, as a member of the LGBT community. I, I, I bring all that to the table. And I really feel that I have a grassroots level. I really want to raise up the voices of, of folks who feel that their voices are not being heard and that uh, that the, that the people at City Hall have a deaf ear when it comes to uh, thinking about uh, building of housing that's, that's accessible and affordable for the people who, who live here and want to stay here, uh, regardless of what their age is, if It's a young family, uh, young professionals, members of our artist community, or even our retirees. There's many retirees who grew up, uh, spent their lives working, their family connections here, they want to stay here, uh, but they're just being priced out of the neighbourhood that they love. Uh, so I think that's what I bring to the table. Uh, my experience as a as a physical therapist, I'm trained to think holistically about problems. Not there's no such thing. You know, there's not a simple answer to the problems that we're facing. And I really feel that if we bring more more people, more voices to the table, that we can have a, a big community conversation and, and get better outcomes for the for the community here.
3: Okay. Well, thanks to both of you. Thank you, uh, Craig Cashman and Liz. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. Liz Brayden is a longtime Oak Square resident, physical therapist and community activist, and Craig Cashman, born and raised in Brighton and former district director for Austin Brighton State Representative Michael Moran. They are the final candidates for Boston City Council's District 9 seat. The Boston City Council elections are November 5th. Coming up, Massachusetts is typically at the top of its class when it comes to STEM education in the United States, but U.S. students overall are behind the curve compared to many of their international peers. That's one reason why Massachusetts has been encouraging students to engage with STEM fields through an annual week-long celebration, Mass STEM Week. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call lanyap that's Creole, for something extra. Most jobs these days require at least some skill in the fields of STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. Classes in STEM education are integrated in K-12 curriculums across the country and here in the Bay State. That's why for the second year in a row, Massachusetts has instituted a week-long initiative aimed at getting kids excited about STEM with a long Term goal of building a pipeline of skilled workers ready to join the ranks of its growing STEM workforce. Mass STEM Week includes a variety of special events and activities organized by participating schools and STEM outreach organizations. My guests in studio today represent organizations which make STEM education a year round undertaking. Lisa Freed, STEM program manager at the Bedford based robotics company iRobot. Lisa is an engineer and a 2017 woman. Worth Watching Award winner. Welcome, Lisa. Hi, how are you? Oh, I'm glad to have you. Andrew DeShane is an associate mechanical engineer at iRobot and a recent graduate of Boston's Wentworth Institute of Technology. Hello, Andrew. Hi. And Olu Ibrahim, founder and CEO of the Lowell-based organization Kids in Tech, which partners with schools to provide after-class STEM activities to students ages 8 to 14. Welcome, Olu. Thank you for having me. Well, this is great because I think uh, no one would argue that STEM is, is so integral to all of our lives. And so that for the second year in a row to have Massachusetts sort of put a highlight on those skills and try to get kids excited is, is really quite something. Lisa, I'm going to start with you. How did iRobot get involved in this year round STEM education outreach?
4: So our STEM program is actually celebrating its 10th year this year. It's an initiative that comes straight down from our CEO, and he's very vested and passionate about us giving back and giving back in a way that is real, that impacts the students and really gets them excited about the careers that are open to them in STEM. So they started the program back in 2009, and it's been going strong and growing ever since. And so we really feel that it's a part of you know our DNA to be talking to students and sharing our passion because iRobot has some of the most passionate engineers that I've ever met. They love what they do, and they're excited to share it with those students.
3: When you go to the schools, what do you do when you get there? I know it's age appropriate. but yep. but, but, but.
4: <laughs> Well, that's actually a really good point. It is age appropriate. We don't have a canned program. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what makes it exciting is we really look at who's the volunteer going, And what do they really enjoy doing? Are they a software person? Are they a marketing person? And then we look at who are we visiting? You know, is it a second grade? Is it a kindergarten? Is it a college classroom? And we try to tailor the program for that. Generically, we're always bringing our robots. We bring them into the classroom. We'll show the kids what they're doing and then talk about who works on the robots, what kinds of careers are out there, why do the robots have those jobs. And most times, our engineers are also... Providing a little bit of a challenge for the students. We like to talk to them about, okay, what what robot would you make? Mm. Why would you make that robot? So when we're in a classroom or any other educational group, it's really about What's going to inspire these kids and what's going to get them excited? So
3: you can give a perspective since you all have been doing this for 10 years. Can you see a difference when you first started were kids like, what are you talking about? And now is there a little bit more um, knowledge about robotics, STEM skills, some of that as you go into classrooms?
4: I think so. I think the robotics is becoming a little more mainstream. Certainly even the growth of our own product is helping because a lot of them now come in and they they know that Roomba is that vacuum thing. Yeah. But I think it's more in the schools. They're getting a little bit more coding in the schools. There's definitely more of a focus on it. Obviously, we'd like to see a greater focus.
3: Okay. That's Lisa Freed from iRobot. Switching over now to Andrew DeShane, who works at iRobot. But at one point, you were a kid. I must say, you look like one now. <laughs> but So you grew up in New Hampshire and had your first exposure there. Talk to us about that. Uh, yeah.
5: <laughs> so my first uh, real exposure to robotics was in high school. I was on a high school robotics team, and so I participated in there starting my freshman year of high school. I honestly didn't know what I was getting into back then. I didn't really know what STEM was, and throughout my experience, I started to learn what STEM was and what engineering was from the robotics club that I was in.
3: And would you say that having... Those outreach programs in school made a huge difference. I know it did individually for you, but can, and looking back now, can you see that that made a huge difference?
5: Yeah, it helped mm-hmm. me define what I wanted for my career. For that, I didn't particularly know what I wanted to do. You,
3: you wouldn't even have considered this because you didn't even know anything about it, right? No, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this is brand new. Okay, yeah. very good. Thank you, Andrew DeShane, who is an engineer now at uh, iRobot, having first learned about it in school. Olu Ibrahim. That's why you set up your company, Kids in Tech. We've mm-hmm. discussed that STEM is across many disciplines. Mm-hmm. So we're talking, you know, science and tech and mm-hmm. engineering and math. Mm-hmm. For you, Kids in Tech, your company, you mm-hmm. wanted to give an opportunity after school for mm-hmm. young kids. Talk about what the pro- how your program operates. Yeah. So we have partnerships with schools and we go on site to those schools after school once or twice
1: a week and we do different projects with the kids. So anything from typing to coding to web design to graphic design, our hope is to make sure that that we close the achievement gap in terms of computer science, computer literacy, and computational thinking skills. And then we also have companies like iRobot who come in and do specialized workshops with the kids so that they get exposure to different types of technologies such as robotics and human factors engineering, biotech. We also get guest speakers from the STEM professionals to come in and talk about their career paths. So... All those things that we do in our program, our Tech Club program, having hands-on learning projects, going on field trips, getting guest speakers to come in to talk to kids about their career paths, working on really cool projects. Our hope is that we are inspiring kids to become the next generation of tech leaders. Um, And research just tells us that early exposure matters. And you can see with the case of uh, Andrew. Andrew, Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. That having those early experiences, showing
3: kids the way they're more likely to do STEM. And you, Olu, are focusing on some of those poorer communities that maybe those kids wouldn't have access at all. Andrew was talking about he was surprised to, to learn about STEM. But for you, are you going into settings where the kids are like, what are you talking about? And this is their first exposure? Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly.
1: A lot of times it's, mm-hmm. what is tech? I really, I see it all the time, but I really don't understand it. And so, for instance, this year they're learning about computer uh, engineering. I remember this one girl named Frances when we, she's like, what is computer engineer?" I've never heard what computer engineering does. And so we explained it to her. And she was building her computer and like learning about Raspberry Pi, and she's like, "Oh, this is really cool." And we have and what is Raspberry Pi? Raspberry Pi is than type, something to eat. <laughs> <laughs>
4: it's,
1: a, it's, it's a type of computer. Um, okay. I think it's like the third uh, most popular computer in the
3: world. Oh, okay. um, so I'll, I'll drop that at a cocktail party. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so yes, exactly. We're I believe that there's untapped talent in the tech field, and kids are the solution to that. And so kids from all different types of backgrounds need to have access to tech. So we often talk to low-income kids because there's on-tap geniuses there too. And for us to build a better inclusive tech sector that creates better products, we need everybody at the table. So kids like Frances, when she gets excited and the concepts make sense to her, we're opening a light bulb for her to become a future tech professional, which we need Mm -hmm. for our economy to thrive.
3: I want to pick up on that in just a minute, but I wanted to emphasize that this is the reason why uh, Mass STEM Week was created, was to actually put highlights on all of these efforts and really to talk about it so there's more exposure. This is Congressman Joe Kennedy, who is co-chair of the STEM Advisory Council, promoting the first Massachusetts STEM Week.
0: Did you know that there are more computer programmers, statisticians, and medical professionals working for the Boston Red Sox than there are baseball players? STEM jobs are as diverse as the people who fill them. And today, expertise in STEM subjects is valuable in so many professions. That's why we need more young people interested in STEM to understand where it fits into their lives and the world around them.
3: So, Alou, you just started uh, touching on this, and I want all of you to weigh in on it. It's not just knowing the skills. This is an important foundational piece of our economy now. These are some of the languages you need to know. As I was saying before, it's just
1: it's important because we need uh, young people to enter tech. How we live, work, and play—the underpinning of that is tech. At least for kids in tech, and why we started it is we want kids to know there's a pathway to the tech field, and it's the livelihood of what we're going to do. We need new inventions. We need faster ways to work live and play and our kids if we can get them to be creative and learn about tech they're going to create better inventions so that's
3: why it's really important to get all kids access to it and Andrew you're sort of the living embodiment of the pipeline you're yeah. you know this is the pipeline they're trying to mm-hmm. create are more kids like yourself and others um when you're out there working with the kids yeah. what do you what what do you take back did you come away with thinking wow this was really uh, important for me to have been there to express yeah, what's I, happening tell talk to me talk to me about that
5: okay mm-hmm. um sometimes you know we find these kids and some of them are very very interested in what we're actually showing them and and then I feel like I can give them more information about what they're actually doing. Um, Just recently I was at a STEM event and I got a kid from not even understanding what programming is to making a very, very simple program with one of our robots. And at first he was just touching the screen and I don't think he knew what he was doing, but it was at the end of the day and him actually being able to make the robot, you know, drive up, down, left, right, it was actually pretty amazing.
3: Lisa Freed, same question to you. I mean, this is so important to iRobot. You have a whole department. We're just going out to talk. How are we? Where is Massachusetts in the spectrum of just trying to stay on top of not only the spread of the STEM skills and the, the support of that, but also just being on top of hiring?
4: I think we do a good job. I think the companies are seeing that it's vital to their success. And so you are slowly seeing more and more companies that are willing to get out there. They're talking to students. They're finding different ways. This weekend is the robot block party, and there's close to you know 10 or 15 companies that are coming just to show robots off to kids and parents and participants. So they definitely see the value. I think from a hiring perspective, we always need more. That's where the pipeline comes into place. I think what you're also seeing, and I, this is where I find it super exciting, is we're realizing we have to talk to everybody. The child that's sitting in the back of the classroom in the math class who's just not interested, we can try to fix that. But maybe they really are interested in social studies or their foreign languages. And one of our goals is to go out there and say, you know what, you could work at a tech company. You can love your French class as much as you want and come work at one of our global tech companies and help us with translations. We have an office in France. Understanding the culture all of those really play in, you know, the kid that's writing all the English stories and does so well with it. Well, guess what? Somebody writes the instructions at iRobot. Somebody does the, you know, copy for our press releases for our advertisements. So when you start appealing to all the kids or all the majors in a college, that's when you really start filling that pipeline, and they see all the jobs available.
3: Mm. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. My guests are Lisa Freed, you just heard her, and Andrew DeShane. They're both of iRobach and Olu Ibrahim of Kids in Tech. And we're discussing STEM education and outreach from Massachusetts STEM Week. I want to pick up on something that Lisa said, uh, Olu, to you, which Mm -hmm. is about this whole pipeline. Because one of the things that is still rough is for kids who are underprivileged. We've talked about that a little bit, but also girls still a little bit. Mm -hmm. shy about, even though we have two women at the table, Mm -hmm. and kids of color, still low numbers. How is this kind of exposure, this kind of highlighting on STEM helping in that respect of getting more of those in the pipeline?
1: Yeah, I think representation matters, right? Uh, When people see people who look like them doing the jobs of today, giving them the inspiration to create new jobs of the future, I think that matters. The statistic tells us that girls often lose interest um, in STEM very early. And I think there's many initiatives solely focused on girls, which are helping to push that needle forward. When we talk about people of color, communities of color, I hope that kids who see me also realize that, They, too, can be in the STEM field, and we make a very cognizant effort to recruit volunteers of color, teachers of color who have STEM backgrounds so that kids who are of color can say, oh, okay, there's people in my neighborhood, in my community who are doing these types of work, and there's, there's a better pathway for me there. For kids in tech in particular, what we're doing is... We hope that our, you know, in our little section of the world, that those things are helping to push the needle further. But, yeah, you know, we still have a long way to go. There's much to do. But I do think that having this uh, initiative with the state and speaking to Lisa's point, making sure that we are creating inclusive uh, tech sector by having volunteers who are part of their programming, going to partner with people like us to do more programs all things pushing the needle forward forward. Um, so, I again, I think, you know, as we continue, as we should continue to show representation in media, uh, in all types of media, mm-hmm. so that kids can start to seem as believing. And so I think that uh, when we continue to do that, we'll make better strides uh Long way to go, but I think we're on the right direction. And
3: something like STEM Week, where you get people are out and about, yes. and you know, and then also in the year-round activities that yes. uh, you all are doing over at iRobot. Uh, Lisa uh, makes a difference. I can tell a personal story. Uh, my niece, mm-hmm. a total. Uh, liberal arts, straight up Jane Eyre reading girl. Um, <laughs> um, several years ago did an adult education class, just uh, mm-hmm. kind of thinking coding seems kind of interesting. She so got into it, then took formal classes. She's a junior developer in Minneapolis now. Wow. Yeah, mm-hmm. and she's completely into it. She's mm-hmm. hackathoning. She's whatever. It's, I can't even describe mm-hmm. you know, all that, that she is doing. So to your points about speaking to everyone, because you just don't know The same way that Andrew, Mm -hmm. he hadn't seen anything when he went to the high school. And then all of a sudden his whole um, world is opened up by Mm -hmm. by just Mm -hmm. being exposed to it. So that's really important. Now, from an economic standpoint, I did want to touch on that because, um, you know, this is I robots, a big company here in Massachusetts. And there are many others um, based in Massachusetts where they need people with these skills. So we're really talking about boosting the economy. Uh, stabilizing the economy however you want to do, pushing the economy forward by making sure that this is integral in every way possible, both in outreach and in and, and schools. Lisa, would you speak to that?
4: I mean, we're hiring. And, you know, in the last year, we hired so many software engineers because that's what the company, you know, is right about now more of a software company with some hardware. And that's where we need the people. We still need the hardware people, we need the mechanical, we need everything. But you've gotta be able to pull from a certain pool. And if the students are not going into those STEM majors, then our pool is limited. And when you're looking for the right fit at a company, you know somebody who might work for us may not fit at a different company. They may be a stellar engineer for one and not the other. You need to have that big pool to pull from. Um, one of the programs that we run at iRobot is going into colleges and making sure these kids stay in their chosen STEM major. STEM is really hard. Yeah. They get to that freshman year and they start getting the poor grades because they've never had a poor grade before and it's, it's soul crushing. So we go out to these colleges and we talk about it. Um, we call the program Permission to Fail and we talk about, hey, you know what? It's, it's gonna happen and you're gonna pull yourself up and you're gonna graduate as an engineer. But I think, you know, from a hiring perspective, the more that we can encourage students to stay in those majors or explore those majors, just like you said, you know, you're, she didn't know that she wanted to be a coder. Had no idea. <laughs> so a lot of times it's just encouraging them, you know, give it a try. Right. And don't intuitive. tune it out because you don't think you can.
3: Now, Andrew, you started the well, the robotics club at Wentworth Institute. Yes. I'm curious about how many of your cohorts in that group went on to Uh, jobs, either like yours or or somewhere in the STEM field?
5: Most of that club was made up of uh, mostly mechanical engineers. Mm -hmm. Um, At the time of when I graduated, I was one of the only people left in my grade. Mm -hmm. So I don't have a good perspective of how more of those people went on to um, STEM-based jobs, although I can assume that, as most of them were mechanical engineers, that it was large, they largely went on to just uh, jobs in mechanical engineering or um, Which I think
3: Because essentially a robotics club is really kind of a support group, at least it's talking yeah. about you hit the wall because it's kind of hard, but now you have each other mm-hmm. to sort of, you know, interact with as you're going through. Uh, learning all the tough stuff. So that's very important in, in terms of keeping people, you know, on the path yeah. toward filling those jobs. So that that was a good thing. You made the point, uh, Olu Ibrahim of uh, Kids in Tech, that in a lot of the poorest communities in Massachusetts, tech companies are building. So mm-hmm. there's a disconnect unless, you know, there's, w- we work to make sure that these kids all right, get these skills and, mm-hmm. and, and get employed. Mm-hmm.
1: Ex- yeah, exactly. Um, uh, with in the Greater low area, we see a lot of tech companies in and around coming in, um, and you know the kids that we serve, we want them to get ac- access and connected to the that tech sector earlier. So they, so local, I feel like to local talent is also also uh, local diverse, inclusive talent is uh, a great way to build that pipeline, and. Uh, when kids see that their community is investing in them, they're more likely to stay, go to school there, and then invest back. So that's my hope for kids in tech, especially what we're doing in Lowell is connecting kids, kids of color, kids of, or kids who are just low income, also have access to this vibrant biotech and tech scene, Um and yeah, if we can, if we can, that that's one of the ways to also solve this uh, massive uh, crisis of all these unfilled jobs. There's so many, I think it's like 2 million plus, uh, you know, there's just, there's, we just need more people to choose stem um, so I think locally local solutions for for mm. uh, national problems so that that's what we're doing
3: at kids in tech based in Lowell all right well I thank you all for joining me and highlighting uh, the upcoming mass stem week and the work that you're doing in outreach and you uh this is kind of thrilling, actually. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having
1: It's not something us. I
3: could do, but I'm really appreciative of it. <laughs> Anyone can do it. Like, right. like, like, like your niece, right? She, okay, listen, yeah. raspberry <laughs> pie, that's what I'm throwing around now. <laughs> right. Lisa Freed is the STEM program manager at the Bedford-based robotics company iRobot. Andrew DeShane is an associate mechanical engineer at iRobot. And Olu Ibrahim is the founder and CEO of the Lowell-based organization Kids in Tech. Mass STEM Week will be taking place from Monday, October 21st through October 25th. Um, So I hope everybody pays attention to that. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at wgbh.org news. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at facebook.com slash under the Radar WGBH. Our intern is Melissa Rosales. Our engineer is David Goodman. Francisca Monahan is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.